At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, I want to dive right into the Word this morning um, as we celebrate our Heavenly Father and as we celebrate those earthly fathers through which He has loved us. Maybe today you come from a home or from a family that was blessed to have a faithful father in it, a home in which you had a father who was faithful to you, faithful to the family, and even more importantly, faithful to God. And if that is your story, if that is is the story of your family. You need to celebrate that dead. How many know those deads are worthy of our celebration and our appreciation? They, they really, uh, really are. And if they're alive, for sure, you should be thanking God for them. Give them a call, cook them a dinner, do something to acknowledge to them that you appreciate and that you're aware that that is a special, special gift. Um, or if they're not here, at least thank the Lord for the grace that he showed you by loving you so well through a good and a godly father. But what do you do? Here's a question I want to consider for just a moment. What do you do if that's not your story? You know, increasingly so, the story of our culture is of unfaithful dads, of men who aren't there for their families, of men who aren't faithful to God. So what do you do if that is your story? You know, one of my earlier remem- earliest remembrances of fatherhood came in, a, in actually a sad moment. My biological father uh, early in uh, my life left our, our family. And uh, I remember the day that he left. I remember him backing out of the driveway. I remember the tears. I remember me and my brother, I was about five, he was about eight, and I remember just the significant impact of that moment on us and on our lives. Later on, my mother, who uh, was quickly ushered into single motherhood, had to rely on God, and I praise God. She is a strong woman. She comes from a long line of strong and godly women. So she looked to the Lord for her strength and for her help, and she went about the business of uh, just uh, raising her two boys. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that we, in spite of her love, were uh, headed down um, an unhealthy and bad track. And in that moment, my, my stepdad stepped in. And I remember when uh, my mom and my stepdad uh, got, got married and uh, me and my brother weren't too happy that he had showed up. You see, we had, in our minds, successfully learned how to manipulate mom and here he was to disrupt the whole agreement that we had worked out. And so we were uh, not too happy uh, about that. And in one of those moments where no doubt he heard our murmuring, I'll never forget my dad sitting us down and saying these words to us. He says, I want you to mark where your friends are who don't have fathers in the home, don't have dads in the home with them. And over the years, I want you to pay attention to where you end up because I'm here. 
And it was a powerful moment that has marked me since that time. And over the years, I have noticed where my friends who didn't have fathers have ended up, didn't have someone in their life giving them guidance, direction, discipline, and helping them to understand who they are, and more importantly, who God is. Now, I'm not going to stand here before you and to say to not have a father in the home who's a good and godly man is a death sentence. No, our God's grace can even overcome that great obstacle. But I will say this, that having a father in the home is an accelerant. It is an accelerant to helping you to understand who you are and understanding who God is and having a deep sense of identity and purpose. I'm grateful for my dad and I'm grateful for the lessons I learned on that day. I walked away from that conversation not realizing fully, but over the years coming to realize there were three powerful things that I learned on that day. Number one, that dads make a difference. How many agree with me on that? Every, every sociologist, Every sociologist you study will confirm this, whether they're Christians or not, that the number one determining variable for where a person ends up is the father that either is present or not present in their lives. Parents are the biggest determining factor or variable on a sociological factor where we end up either in their presence or in their absence. The second lesson that I learned from that moment is that sometimes you're going to have to be what you didn't see. We can't just say, well, I didn't have that role model, therefore I don't have to model it. No, by God's grace, we can be what we didn't see. And the third lesson I learned, and by the way, this is just my introduction. I haven't even started preaching yet. Uh, but the third lesson I learned from that moment with my dad is that you can't be a good dad without a good God. It takes a good God to be a good dad. As a matter of fact, I would give you an even deeper premise, and we can unpack this more later, but you can't be good without God. Certainly, uh, good is a, uh, on a, on a relative sense, we can be uh, compared to one another or comparing ourselves against ourselves, but good on the measuring stick of God, God's moral law. None of us can can measure up, but God, by his grace, has offered us grace and mercy and salvation through Jesus Christ. And how many thank God for that good news? Amen. <laughs> Open your Bibles. I want to be quick today. Psalm 103. And in Psalm 103, what we're going to see is a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of the way that God shows us how a father should care for their children or for his children. How, how should a father care for his children? Well, if you're asking that question, it's a good question. God, our heavenly father, and this is how he relates to us. He could have related to us in any way, any relational structure, but he relates to us as our heavenly father and his people, starting with Israel, extending to the church, have always been seen as his chosen children, but we get a snapshot of how he cares for his kids. And the first thing that we see is that we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. Read with me in verse number six, if you will. It says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding 
and steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Jump with me to verse number 12, if you will. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know, I've heard many a woman, maybe uh, multiple times, say to me on Mother's Day, can you please not preach Proverbs 31? The Proverbs 31 woman, she's an impossible comparison. Who can be that woman? And I am sympathetic to that point. But I will say, as an aside, for Father's Day, our comparison is be a dad like God. Think about that measuring stick. Right? So, so this is the challenge for men that you're supposed to, I'm supposed to, be a father like God is a father. But it reveals something even deeper. And I want to give you this tip about the right and the wrong way to read the Bible. If you read the Bible and you leave, leave that moment with an attaboy attitude, if you read the scriptures and you leave that moment with a sense of pride, puffed out chest, saying to yourself, look at how good I'm doing, you have not read it correctly. The Bible is meant to bring us to Jesus. But in order to bring us to Jesus, it has to bring us to the end of ourselves. And the way that the Bible brings us to the end of ourselves is to give us the perfect picture to create within us a sense that I can't do this. If you read the Bible or even think deeply, honestly, seriously about the words we just read, you are left with one conclusion and that is, I can't measure up to that standard. That's the point. That's a good place to be. Because it's at the end of ourselves where we recognize our need for God. We can't be good dads without a good God. Notice the first thing we learn about our Heavenly Father. It says in verse number six, the Lord works. He is constantly working, working for the benefit of his children. This is what a good father does. This is what our Heavenly Father does. I want you to see the text. He says the Lord works, but what is he working for? He is working for righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. All of his children that are mistreated, all of his children that have been abused in this world, uh, marginalized, exploited, taken advantage of, the father is constantly working and intervening for their well-being, for their deliverance, for their ultimate freedom and justice. This is what our father does. He works for our benefit. And that's what a good dad does. He is constantly working for the benefit of his children. Now, maybe at times accused of working too much, but I would much rather be accused of that than working too little. A good dad is constantly thinking about how can I benefit, how can I bless my family, and one of the ways I can do that is through my work and may my work not just be for me, for the selfishness of my own desires and appetites, but may it be for the good of my family and the good of my children. 
But it doesn't just work if uh, verse number seven is accurate. A good father is not only always working, he's always teaching as well. A good father is always instructing. Look at these words. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. He didn't just do, but he explained the why behind the what. This is what a good dad is. Just know, kids, it's a part of our birthright as fathers to be able to lecture you. This is why we get into the business of having kids, so that we might have somebody who we can lecture. This is what a good dad does. He is always explaining the why behind the what. Now, some men do it with words. Some men do it just with their actions, but good dads are always teaching Our Heavenly Father could have just did these great works for Israel, but he didn't just do these great works for Israel, but he made known his ways. He explained the why behind the what so that they could be shaped. And the the text begs us to ask the question whether our Father taught us with words or with action. Here's the question. Are we listening? Have we been paying attention And it's typically as you get older that you come to realize, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, all those times I thought he was just wasting my time. All those moments that felt so annoying to me. All those times when I said to him, did I know it was him teaching me? And again, the Father, our Heavenly Father, personifies all of this. But yet, something happens between verses 7 and 8. And it's not recorded in the text, but it is very clear in the shift of the direction of the text. God, as the Father, goes from doing good work and and teaching us all of these life lessons to, to clearly there was a sin Clearly there was the rebellion of Israel and that was so often their pattern that no matter how good the father was in his work towards them, no matter how many good lessons he taught them, they continued to rebel over and again and nothing breaks the heart of a father more than knowing that I have worked hard for my family and I have taught them good and I have did them good only for them to reject and rebel against all of it. But I want you to notice how our heavenly father responds to the failure of his children. Look at verse number eight. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I wonder if that describes you and me. Is that us? The obvious answer for most of us, certainly for me, is that this is so far from how I typically respond to the failures of those around me, to the mistakes, to the sins, to the rebellion of those around me. It goes on even further to say in verse number nine, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. How many thank God for that? Now, it's not that he does not get angry. Don't read this flower child hippie theology into this. God does get angry. He gets angry when we rebel. He gets angry when we sin. In particular, Scripture shows us that his anger is aroused at its greatest level when we are harming each other. 
when we, through our words and through our actions, are mistreating and afflicting one another, that's when our Heavenly Father is most angered. But yet, He knows we could not handle His anger if it was unceasing. And so as our Heavenly Father, as a good Father does, in spite of our rebellion, He forgives us again and again and again. It goes on to say, verse number 10, I'm gonna argue this and we can meet in the lobby afterwards if you wanna debate it. I'm gonna argue that it might just be the most precious verse in all of scripture. And I want you to read these words with me and watch the impact they have on your soul and think about what it's saying here. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. If you're like me, you have sinned way too much in both word and in action. And that's just the stuff you know about that doesn't even take into consideration how many times you've blown it not even knowing And all sin is first an offense against God. We have offended him. I have offended him again and again and again. My rebellion, my pride, my attitude, my insolence, my anger, and I deserve. The Bible tells me what I deserve. And praise God, the point of the text is you don't get what you deserve. Anytime my kids go to complain that they didn't get what they deserve, I try to remind them that that's a good thing. You need to thank God you didn't get what you deserve because if we got what we deserved, if I got what I deserved because of my sin, I would deserve judgment. I would deserve punishment. Anybody with me? I would deserve death and hell, and the grave, and I don't think I'm the only one, but praise be to God that he does not deal with me, you, us, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As a matter of fact, as far as the east is from the west, this is how far he has separated us from our sin. A good father is always looking not to heap the sins of their children on top of them as an unpayable debt, but to separate them from their sins. And this is the gift that we have received. The greatest Father's Day gift will not be what you give to your dad today, but it is a gift that your heavenly Father, our heavenly Father, gives to us when he says, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, not just for your body, but for your soul. He forgives us. He shows us mercy. And the the text begs me to ask a question that my heart wants to avoid. And here's the question that the text forces and confronts me to ask. Is this describing you, Chris? Is this you? Are you slow to anger? Are you gracious and merciful? Are you quick to forgive? You know, I I talk to you often about the books that I read, some mild, some weighty. 
And one of the most significant books that I've read in my life was actually not a book for men, but I had to do this interview. Some of you may remember the name. Uh, she was a great author. She's since gone on to be with the Lord. Her name was Linda Dillow. Anybody ever heard that name before? Two of you. Praise God. This is going to go over real good. Um, but Linda wrote a book uh, with a very dangerous title. It sold 1.2 million copies. It was simply entitled this, What's It Like to Be Married to Me? That's a dangerous title. You want to get yourself uh, some real truth? Ask your spouse that. What's it like to be married to me? As a matter of fact, you want to get them in trouble? Ask them that question, and they'll be as quiet, if they're smart, as quiet as they can be. But that question is not confined to marriage, is it? It extends beyond marriage. What's it like to be a friend to me? What's it like to work with me? And Jermaine, impertinent to this text, What's it like to be parented by me? If you ask your kids that question, they may not describe you this way. But if they don't, don't feel unique in that. Join the rest of us in humanity who recognize that you can't be a good dad without a good God. But thank God, our good God has made himself available to us in Jesus Christ. And how many thank God for that truth? Second thing that we learn from this text is that we are not only the beneficiaries of his mercy, we are the focus of his love. Look at the B part of verse number eight. We've read it, but let me just revisit it. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, to put steadfast in front of love is to put a descriptor in front of this word. It is to put an adjective in front of this word. It is to speak to a unique qualitative type of love. Verse number 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his, there it goes again, steadfast love towards those who fear him. What is steadfast love? You should be thinking of that question. I wrote down this as a description of steadfast love. Steadfast love is a patient love. It is a never giving up love. It is a tender mercy type of love. Some of you may even have that in your translations describing the way that this type of love expresses itself. It's an I got your back always kind of love. And I put this in my notes. It's a finding Nemo type of love. Finding Nemo, I will argue this in the lobby as well, is the greatest Father's Day movie ever made. Can I get an Amen. Now, if you follow that movie, you got Nemo, this little fish with this uh, small little fin, and he thinks he's ready to go out and tackle the world, and he's young and dumb like most kids, like we were, and he goes out to tackle the world, and he gets lost and almost eaten and swallowed up by sharks and in all types of danger, but his dead Marlin goes after him and pursues him until he finds him. And earlier in the 815 service, I described Nemo and, and his dad as goldfish, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, they're not goldfish, they're clownfish, and get it right. I just want you to know I get a lot of feedback from my sermons. I get a lot of feedback, so I want to make that corrective. So they're clownfish, and Dory stole the show, got her own movie out of it. It worked out real well for Dory. But the best part of that movie is how it models for us the love of a father. This steadfast, never giving up, always having your back type of love. 
And then if that wasn't enough, the psalmist who's writing this song, by the way, psalms are the ancient playlist of Israel. These are songs that they sung as a congregation that are full and rich of theology. He, he writes this analogy, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who love him. You probably have never heard of the theologian Albert Barnes. He lived during the 1800s, but he writes this commentary about this particular verse. He says, the heavens are the highest object of which we have knowledge. And hence, the comparison here is used to denote the great love of God, that it is the greatest conceivable love men can know. Just as the heavens are the greatest conceivable height that we can know, what God says is if you can think of a love that is great, the greatest conceivable love that you can envision and imagine, that is my love for you, but even greater. And this is the thing that kids don't know about moms and dads. What kids don't realize about moms and dads is how much we love them. They don't realize the greatness and the depths of our love. Now, as you get older, hopefully you come to realize it more and more. And when you have kids of your own, you really begin to get a glimpse of, oh, that's how much they love, love me. The only way I can describe it is me and my wife we're at an adoption conference once, and I remember hearing one of the speakers say these words, that every child deserves to have at least one person in their life that loves them with an irrational love. That, that really describes a parental love, the love of the father. It goes beyond reasoning. It goes beyond rationality. It, it looks at the situation and says, uh, the equation is that if I keep loving you and remain committed to you, I'm going to be hurt, but I'm going to keep on loving you and remaining committed to you, even though it's going to hurt me and cost me a lot. This is the way that Jesus' love is expressed. His love costs him a lot. If he was just looking at the benefit-cost analysis on that, he would have walked away from us a long time ago. But his love goes beyond reason and rationality into something far deeper. The Greek word for it is agape. It is the type of God love that fills the hearts of good dads. It, it, it takes an irrational love to change diapers. I'm telling you right now, it does. You don't, you don't do that for everybody. It, it, it takes an irrational love to remain committed to your kids through the teenage years. Can I get an amen for that? It takes an irrational love to stay with them through the young adult years as they rebel and they walk away from all those things that you told them were true only to later realize that they were true. But yet this is the way the Father has loved us. And when you feel like giving up, and you will, and when you feel the equation and the math is too much and the pain is too much and it hurts too much, remember the cross. If you ever wanna know how much God loves you, look at the cross. If you ever need a reminder, remember the cross. I want to end with this because I want us to close with worship and the day is already long. But verses 13 and 14 
says this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. What sweet words that he knows our frame. The word compassion there comes from the Latin, the word passion means to suffer, compassion, to enter into someone else's suffering, to suffer with more precisely. God enters into our suffering with us. He doesn't just observe it from a distance. And why do we suffer? Why does he do it? It's because he knows our frame. To say that he knows our frame is to indicate that he knows the depths of our weaknesses, but he also knows our potential as well. Good parents get a chance to demonstrate to their children that they know their frame. I was in second grade and my teachers told my parents that we think we should hold Chris back in school. He's disruptive in class, he won't stop talking. I don't know where they got that from. (laughs) He's not only disruptive in class, his grades are bad, We don't think he's socially mature enough to go forward. We don't think he is academically smart enough to go forward. But I was blessed to have parents who knew my frame. I remember my parents fighting for me and saying to the teachers, with all due respect, we heard what you said about him, the labels you put on him, but we got a more complete picture of him And they fought for me, and praise God, I was able to get into a good Christian school and get to high school at 12, graduate at 16, go on to college, serving the Lord now. I don't say that to my credit. I say it to their credit because they knew my frame. God knows your frame. He knows your weaknesses, but where others stop there, he also sees your potential. He knows that if you can just turn to him, He can transform your life and make all things new. I want to invite you to stand with me. And as you stand with me, I want you to consider for just a moment your relationship with God and where you're at. And if you have one, if you don't, today can be the day of your salvation. Bow your heads with me, if you will. Close your eyes. If today you know you need to give your heart to the Lord, if today you want to surrender your life to him, if today you know you cannot fix your own life, you need God to do it, if today you want to turn from sin to Jesus, can you just lift your hand? I'd love to pray for you with every head bowed, with every eye closed. Can you just lift your hand if today... You want to make Christ your Lord for the first time or maybe come back again. Keep that hand high. I see your hand there. I see your hand as well. Keep your hand high. I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for these whose hands are lifted. You say those who call upon the Lord shall in no ways be cast out, but they shall be saved. Lord, I pray that you would save them as they call upon you by lifting their hands even now. Transform their lives. Show them your grace and mercy. Thank you for being such a good father. We have so much gratitude and thankfulness. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.